Great, so Isaiah chapter 9 starts with the word, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. For in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks today because this is the word of the Lord. We give you thanks today because this is your promise. That in this world of darkness and fear and lostness, there will be a light there will be a joy, there will be a hope that one day warfare will cease and your kingdom will increase, that forgiveness will be possible, that healing will be available for unto us a child is born. So Lord, we pray that as we open our hearts today, would you open your word to us and by your spirit, Would you speak to each and every one of us today about this hope, about this promise and our place within it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're starting a new series this morning called Away in a Manger. And we're going to be thinking about this way that Jesus has opened up for us in his coming, in his life. We often think about it, don't we, through the lens of the end of his life, through Calvary. Uh, But Jesus didn't just come to die, otherwise he could have just been, just arrived and and done that. But there's a purpose in him being born, there's a purpose in his life, and we're going to be exploring that starting this morning. I'm going to do a quick survey this morning of people. How many people here are radio people? Got any radio people here? I'm becoming, the older I'm getting, I'm becoming more of a, a radio person, especially uh, when I'm in the car. Uh, I love those times when you're in a traffic jam or you're waiting for traffic lights, which is often the case on my road at the moment. Uh, and uh, <coughs> you see people getting all frustrated and agitated. I just turn up Classic FM 
and just listen to some timeless, glorious music from some of the greatest composers of all time or film scores. Either way, it's a, either one will do. And you could fill the car with, with that kind of music. Sometimes I get in the car and I put the radio on and somebody else has been listening to the radio. And you get this other kind of, I think it's called music, but this other kind of stuff that starts playing. So I was in the car the other day and this song came on. Uh, some of you here will, will know it and you'll know the singer. From a distance. Do you know this song? The world looks blue and green and the snow-capped mountains white. Sung by, I don't know, so you could tell me anyone. Bette Midler. Bette Midler. Ten points. Sung by Bette Midler. As I'm driving along, I'm singing along to this song from a distance. God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. And I suddenly caught myself singing these words. And I thought to myself, with all due respect to Bette Midler, <laughs> God is not watching us from a distance. It's possible, isn't it, to have that kind of view of God. That we're down here and our lives are, are kind of made up of, of basic stuff that we've got to get on with. And, and God is, is somewhere else. He's doing something else. He's interested in, in something else. And there may be these odd times when God will come from there to here. But by and large, we're, we're on our own. It's possible to understand God from a distance. It's possible to follow God from a distance. You remember when Jesus was arrested, the Peter who'd promised, no matter what anybody else does, I'm going to go down fighting at your side, drops his sword and runs into the darkness, but then follows the, the, the action from a distance. We're told at, at one point that he is weeping bitterly outside the city wall because following from a distance will not satisfy. There's another moment later on in Peter's life when the risen Jesus comes back to him. And he, he brings this moment up and he asks him the question that cuts through all of that. The, the question that closes the gap, that bridges the distance. Do you love me more than all of these? I wonder what we'd say today if Jesus asked us that question. Do you love me? With all the mistakes that you've made and everything we know about you, everything you know about yourself, do you love me? And this time, Peter makes no grand promises, makes no grand pledges. He simply says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus invites him to, to feed his sheep. So Peter has gone from following from a distance to sitting there knowing Jesus knows all things. I wonder today if you were to kind of plot out your journey and place yourself somewhere on a journey today, how close you would be following Jesus. Are we following him from a distance? It's possible to follow him from a distance. It's possible to know him from a distance. It's possible to love him from a distance. But the Christmas story, among many other things, shows us that God is not watching us from a distance. <coughs> when I was younger, I grew up in uh, the valleys, and there was a time when a whole bunch of us from our church in the valleys came down to Cardiff because uh, we'd hear that this up-and-coming, really cool singer called Graham Kendrick uh, was putting on a, a concert 
Anybody here go to the Rumors of Angels tour? Uh, well, shame on you. We came from the valleys to see. You only had to drive to all nations. Uh, so uh, it was an absolutely a, amazing night. There's a lot that happened that night that I still remember as, as a young person. Uh, and there was a song that the Rumors of Angels uh, album begins with. It says this, Earth lies spellbound in darkness, sin's oppressive night, yet in Bethlehem, Hope is burning bright. Mysteries are unfolding, but the only sign is in a manger bed where a baby cries. Crowding stairways of starlight, choirs of angels sing glory, glory to God in the highest heaven. Peace is stilling the violence. Hope is rising high. God is watching us now through a baby's eyes. God is watching us. He is watching us, but not from a distance, through a baby's eyes. And not a baby that was born in a palace or in safety or security, not a baby that was born in in riches, but one who was placed in a manger of all places. A cattle's feeding trough. We often think, don't we, or share or sing about a stable. Actually, the Bible never uses the word stable. Mangers were found in stables. They were also found on the side of fields or on the side of roads. So it is just as likely that when the king of glory enters into our reality, he was born into the cold night air and laid on hay and wood. He wants to show us, see, how close he wants to be to us, that there is no distance, that he will not bridge. He is watching us now through a baby's eyes. This way that Jesus makes in a manger is a way to see us, a way to understand us. Uh, if you're in a small group here at Bethel, and if you're not, we'd love to, to plug you into one. And please do speak to myself or, or Rosie, who started the service. Uh, you'll know that the last, this last week, you were looking at this question of how Jesus' eyes, as they opened in the manger, allowed him a new way to see us. What does that mean? Well, the hope of this was first whispered through the prophet Isaiah as he sat one day. And we don't know if he was waiting on the Holy Spirit or if these words hit him or or came to him over time. We've got no idea. But as he wrote these words, you can almost imagine him thinking to himself, can I believe this? This Isaiah who had had a vision of a God who was holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with your glory. Then writes these words, For unto us a child is born, will arrive in the world through normal ways of a birth, a human being. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A human being, a child, a baby being called Mighty God. 
Now, you wouldn't have to school Isaiah in this. He would know as a Jewish person this was blasphemy to call a human being God unless God himself was doing this. Just, by the way, as a, as a quick aside here, he will be called Almighty God. And then we're given these three titles. A God who is at one and the same time an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace, and a Wonderful Counselor. Three in one and one in three. The Trinity might be unbelievable, but let's not say for a second it's unbiblical. A mighty God, everlasting Father, then a Prince of Peace, and a wonderful Counselor. A mighty God in a child, as a person, as a human being. Those eyes which were then going to experience the full range of human life. And as we read through Jesus' life, the gospel writers seem so keen to emphasize this. That yes, he was fully God, he was almighty God, and yet he was fully human. It struck me a few times this. Um, There's one time when Jesus is is out ministering to him and someone touches the edge of his cloak. And he's aware that power has gone out from him. He's aware that ministering to others exacts a cost, takes something out of him. There's another time when he's been ministering in one area and he sends the disciples into a village in Samaria and then he goes and sits by the well and John tells us it's because he was tired from his journey. Anybody here tired from time to time? Anybody here exhausted from time to time? Anybody here exhausted this morning? Jesus understands that. Not in some sort of theoretical way, not from a distance, He sat at a well and was so thirsty, he was willing to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. Jesus knows what it is to be thirsty. There's another time when he turns to the disciples and he says to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He has cause to question his effectiveness, the purpose of his mission. Is it working? Are people getting it? Are people seeing it? He understands that. There's another time when he turns around to the disciples and says, how much longer must I put up with you? Perverse and wicked generation. He understands frustration. There's a time in the temple when he's so angry that people who are seeking God have to go through this ritual, this, the, the, this process, and have to sort of feed someone's pockets in order to get into the temple. He, he's so angered at the injustice of it. He's flipping tables. Jesus understands injustice. And anger, which means he understands you. He understands me. Those times of deep frustration. Those times of deep exhaustion. Those times when we question. Those times when we search. Those times when we long. Jesus knows what makes you tick. He has walked your road. He's felt your pain carried your burden. He's lived this life. It's a new way to see us. John describes it this way, that the word, which was a concept in the Greek, which just meant the reason behind all things, the wisdom for living, the word that was both in the beginning before all things, who both was God and with God, this logos, this world, became, took on a new 
um, condition, flesh and blood. The word for flesh in the Greek is, is carne, from which uh, it's, it's just this stuff. It's not a clever theoretical word. He, he's throwing together two bizarre, completely opposite concepts. The logos, the reason, the wisdom, the purpose, and flesh and blood. And he doesn't just say that. He then says, and dwelt among us. Or as another translation brilliantly, I think, puts it, moved into our neighborhood. This is our God, not from a distance, but through a baby's eyes, through a human life. There was once an Anglican vicar who was asked why he became a vicar, because he'd been known for years as being a staunch atheist. He was also a big drinker, and was often found down the pub arguing with people of, of faith. Suddenly he becomes a vicar, and people start to ask him, what. Well, why did you become a vicar? So he explains, well, I became a Christian first, and that's kind of important. So he said, I'll tell you how I became a Christian. And he said it was because of a chicken. Of course, the natural, the obvious, isn't it? It's just a, a chicken, the standard way to become a Christian. He says that he went to a, a Christmas Eve service with his wife, who was a big believer. And on the way home, he was really frustrated. And he's arguing with her on the way home, saying, if God did want us to know him, why would he choose to come in a single, simple human life? Now, why there, in, in that place, why then in history, and why that person? Why not declare it to the whole world? Why not come down in all of his glory and all of his power? Why would he choose to do it in that way? And then they get home. And they start to pack up the, the, the kind of the farm and the threshold that they've got. And uh, there's a snowstorm that hits. And as he's looking out of the window into the snowstorm, you can see all these chickens that are kind of running around like headless. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. uh, and they're all running around panicking. And he thinks to himself, oh, they're, they're going to run off. They're going to get hurt. So he goes out and he opens the doors of the barn. And as they see him coming out, because he's much bigger than them and they're sort of scared, they're all scattering and, and running away. And so in this snowstorm, he's trying to shout to them to get into this barn. And of course, he doesn't speak chicken. I don't know how many of us here do. So he gets so frustrated. So he just leaves the doors of the barn open. And then he goes back in the house and he's looking out the window. And these chickens who are running around in panic and fear, uh, there's these doors open. There's a safe barn just there, but they're not going in. And he starts to think to himself, if only I could speak chicken, I could go out and help them. Then, of course, he thinks, well, actually, that would be terrifying. If I went out there and spoke chicken, that'd be even, that'd be even weirder. I'd have to somehow become a chicken in order to lead them into safety. And it was that that showed him that if God came in all of his glory and power, we would scatter in all directions. He had to come in a single, simple human life to tell us that the doors are open, that there is sanctuary, there is rest, there is hope, there is healing, there is forgiveness, if we will follow him. So, thank God this Christmas for, for chickens. Jesus himself, in his own life, there are times, many times, when we read of him weeping, and one of the times is on the last week of his life, the, first, the start of that week, he's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, and the crowd are all 
celebrating the fact that he's there. There's palm leaves being thrown down and cloaks sort of paving the way. But Jesus himself is weeping as he sees the city. And he weeps for them and says, Jerusalem, if only you knew this day what would bring you peace. That sense of tragedy. If only you knew the barn was there, the doors are open. If only you knew. And then later on he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And so he comes as a single, simple human life. There's another time when Jesus uses birds as an illustration. There's a time when he's talking to people, and uh, in Jerusalem, uh, sparrows could be sold two for a penny. And this one day, as Jesus is walking through the market, he hears of another bargain that you could buy five for two pennies. So four for two pennies and a bonus one thrown in for free, because sparrows weren't thought of being worth anything. They were sort of a poor man's meal, really. And Jesus says, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside without your father's care. He knows every time a sparrow falls to the ground, he is not watching from a distance. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. I'm aware as I'm looking at the screen this morning, that's not too difficult with some of us. But don't you be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. He doesn't just know, cares, cares so deeply for you. I'd love to just take a few moments to, to walk through what something of this means and then have a chance for us to, to pray together today. There's one letter in the New Testament called Hebrews. And the writer there is trying to emphasize the journey that Jesus takes to, to rescue us. And there he writes this. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Now, as we go through this series, we're going to be thinking about some of these words in more detail. But for this morning, I just want you to grasp this. Fully human in every way, in every way, everything that it means to be human, Jesus experienced, he knows it all, and sometimes we can have this view of Jesus, can't we, and there were certainly some older movies that kind of painted him as sort of gliding through life, uh, unaffected by things, this sort of ghostly appearance, almost like there was a skateboard under his, underneath his robe, and he, he just floated in and floated out and said some, some wise things from, from time to time. No, fully human in every way. He would have tripped over his words from time to time. He would have stubbed his toe. He would have been late for things. He was fully human in every way. There's nothing that we can experience as a human being that he does not understand, that he does not know. Uh, these words come up again uh, in chapter 4. Uh, and this is the point. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he 
did not sin. So it's not just the human part of our lives, the, the fleshly part, uh, the part that lives in time and space and skin and, and this world, but also the spiritual aspect. Jesus was tempted, tempted in every way, just as we are. I can't think of a way that he can underline this more times for us. In every way, just as we are. In some ways, Jesus is just like me, and in other ways, Jesus is nothing like me, yet he did not sin. He came to lay down his life as a perfect offering, a perfect sacrifice. So it's not just at the cross that Jesus is surrendering to the will of God. It's every time he's tempted, every time there's an opportunity to use his power for his own promise, for his own glory, for his own agenda. Every time he says, no, it's for me and it's for you so he can be a perfect offering. But he was tempted. He faced those, those battles of should I, shouldn't I, will I, won't I. He faced those in every way, just as we are. I'd love to end with a, a story. There's a time in the book of Acts in chapter 8 when this amazing evangelist called Philip is uh, serving God in an area of, of Samaria. And, uh, there's great sort of revival taking place. It's a very effective time uh, of, of ministry. People are coming to faith. People are being delivered and healed of, of all kinds of things. And then one day, an angel comes to Philip and says, Philip, I want you to go. It's interesting, isn't it, how many times in the Bible when heaven invades a situation, they say to people, just stay where you are. Just carry on doing what you're doing. It doesn't happen, does it? It's go. And so Philip gets up and, and goes. Now, you might have thought it would be from one very effective, very fruitful situation to another very effective, fruitful situation, but not so much. Uh, Philip is sent to the desert road. Now, if you've known evangelists, and I know a few uh, in, in my life, they love people. They love to be around people. They love to have conversations with people about Jesus. So for Philip to hear you're going to the desert sounds like a, a demotion. Sounds like he's being punished for something, but, but off he goes. And he stood there waiting in the desert. Okay, we're having a good time in Samaria, but we'll, we'll wait in the desert for a while. And then he sees this chariot charging through the wilderness, and God speaks to him again. And the Holy Spirit says, go. Go keep up with that chariot. Obviously, Philip was fitter than me. This is why God sent Philip there and not me. So Philip starts chasing after this chariot. And as he's chasing it, he can hear somebody reading Scripture in the chariot. It's somebody reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So Philip can't help himself and says, do you know what you're reading or do you need someone to explain it to you? I guess he was probably huffing and puffing as he's running and, and, and doing this together. And The guy says, well, how, how can I understand it? unless someone explains it to me. So Philip gets up into the chariot. Turns out this guy is a eunuch, an Ethiopian. He's somebody who's been in charge of the queen's treasury back in Ethiopia. He's a very important man, very sort of significant person in that context. And he's come to Jerusalem. And this happened from time to time. We read throughout the scriptures, don't we, that sometimes dignitaries would come because they'd heard something about Israel. 
And I guess over time they recognize that all these other kingdoms come and go, and Israel just lasts. It just stays there. It just, just keeps going. And they cheered about the temple, and so this Ethiopian eunuch had been sent to the temple. But if life had taken its natural course, and we're not told that it hadn't, he would have been met at the door. Now, there was a certain point at which this Ethiopian could enter the temple. There was a court of the Gentiles where he could go and, and wander around. And then there was a wall, a barrier, and beyond that, it was for the Jews alone to go in. And even within that, there's the holiest of holies where only the priest, high priest could enter once a year. But this Ethiopian has got another problem. We're told he was a eunuch. And in the ancient world, there were certain people who were called upon to serve the royal family as a servant. But in order to make sure that they weren't tempted to start their own royal dynasty, a rival dynasty, they were castrated. At a certain age, they would have been selected, taken away, and against their own will, had this humiliating procedure done to them. And then throughout the rest of their lives, they carry this stigma. I guess for a lot of them, they grow up and see friends of theirs going on to get married and have children. I'm sure a lot of them think, I guess that would be nice. But because of what's been done to me through no will or choice of my own, that's not a door that is open to me. And there's a verse in Deuteronomy that says that no, nobody who has had this procedure done to them, no eunuch, is able to enter into the, the temple courts. Uh, they, he would have been barred entry at, at that point. So at some point this has happened, he's been refused entry, but he's managed to purchase a scroll. I guess it was just a, a random choice, I guess, as he was leaving. He thought, well, I'd better take something home, and what can I buy? And somebody sells him a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. Now, one of the things about Hebrew is that there are no spaces in between the words. So if you're going to read it, you can only read it out loud. It's the only way it makes sense. And so he's there reading the Hebrew out loud. And there's this verse that he gets to uh, in Isaiah. It gets to chapter 53, which talks about the suffering servant, the lamb who would take upon himself the, the, the disease, the sickness, the um, the infirmity and the, uh, the judgment of the punishment of, of all of us. He gets to these words. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? His life was taken from the earth. Of all the scrolls of the Old Testament, of all the chapters, of all the verses to read, this must have read like his own diary. Who can speak of his descendants. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. I remember when Lois, our, our third child, was born, our daughter. Uh, soon after she was born, she began having seizures. Some of you know this story because you walked very closely with us through that time. Uh, and uh, she was taken into hospital and, and was there for a long time. Uh, and one night I was staying there and I was reading the Bible. And I was just reading through Mark's Gospel. And I suddenly read this verse, and it was just a random thing. I was not, no grand plan to read through Mark's gospel. It was just p picking a bit to read. And there's a bit where it says that Jesus healed all of their diseases and all kinds of seizures. 
Now, up until that point, if you'd asked me if the word seizures was in the Bible, I'd have been one of those idiot pastors on who wants to be a millionaire that got the Bible question wrong. I'd, I'd, I'd have said no. But in that moment, it was like a bolt of electricity ran through me. It was like hope pulsated again, like, like a light. And I'm sure for this eunuch, it was a similar experience. Who can speak of his descendants? No wonder he wants to know. No wonder he asks Philip, is he writing about himself or, or someone else? And Philip begins to explain it. It's Jesus who he's writing about. What's interesting is that I love to imagine what happens later as this eunuch, after this encounter, is traveling back to Ethiopia. I presume he continues to read through the prophet Isaiah. And only a couple of chapters later, a couple of turns of the scroll, he'll read these words. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. He goes on to say that this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And this is our God does not want people to feel excluded from his promise, from his presence. He's not the God from a distance, but the God who comes chasing us down our desert roads, who writes to us, it must have felt like a letter, to the eunuchs, to you. And doesn't just send him down this road, but sends somebody chasing after his chariot who will explain it to him. This is our God. And then it gets to this point as they're going along together where the eunuch goes, oh, there's water in the desert. I don't know where this water was from, but somehow God who created the world knew that one day a eunuch would be riding back to Ethiopia on a chariot and would need some water. So he places a stream in the wilderness for them. They happen to come along it just after this conversation. So here's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And Philip's like, well, if God has sent me here to chase you through the wilderness, certainly not me. Certainly not some cultural norm. Certainly not some ancient tradition or religious law. If Jesus says you're in, you're in. A name better than sons and daughters. This is Jesus. This is our God. And I'm aware today that this story about the Ethiopian eunuch is probably the most bizarre story to preach on in Advent. And yet, it shows to each and every one of us today, God sees us. God knows us. And in those places where we feel excluded or unwelcome or unworthy, he comes chasing after us. This is our God who breaks into our Bethlehems, who breaks into our desert roads, who chases us down. This is what prevents you. I'd love us just to take a few moments to pray today. And I'm aware that for some of us, we'll be in different places on this. Can I invite us just to bow our heads and close our eyes? And maybe for some of us here today, we, 
we identify with the eunuch, with his questions, with his journey, with his pain. And my prayer for you is that you might know the God who is Emmanuel. The God who is not just with us globally or theoretically, but the God who says unto you, a Savior has been born. To you, a child is given. I don't know, maybe you weren't going to be in church today. Maybe you had other plans. Maybe you weren't going to be watching this. Maybe this is not what you normally do, but somehow you're here today, and somehow God wants to speak to you today. As parents, we often feel that pain, don't we, that Jesus articulated, that as a hen longs to gather and protect we long it when we see it in the lives of our loved ones. Well, how much more does this God want you to know his love today? You're worth more than a sparrow, worth more than many sparrows. And it might be that for others of us here today, we need to hear that call to go. to be willing to see someone else's pain through their eyes and not ours. To be willing to let go of what we thought is real and true in order to follow Jesus into new places. And if that's you today, then may you know the God who is Emmanuel, the God who goes before you and the God who goes with you. And for all of us today, I pray, Lord, that we would close that distance. Lord, that you teach us what it is to follow you more nearly to see you more clearly and to love you more dearly. Thank you, Jesus, that you want us to know this love personally so much that you came in a single, simple human life. Spoke in our language. Walked our road shared our pain, yet without sin. <coughs> so Lord, would you take us deeper into your presence, into your love, into your purpose, into your grace. Would you free us, God, from the things that prevent us from taking the plunge, from surrendering, from fully saying yes to you, Jesus. 
And my God, we know the joy and the hope and the peace that comes from knowing that you understand. Because the Savior of the world has come.